You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 17th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, we'll discover why South Koreans, well, some South Koreans, are up in arms about an ambassador's moustache. We will get up in arms ourselves about the blurring of the line that divides nouns from verbs. Of course, there are a millennia of data to suggest, unless borrowing to buy a house or defend a nation in time of war, that there is very definitely a right way to money. But this column's real niggle about the ad is its promotion of a very wrong way to English. And we'll find out how this topped the UK's iTunes chart. Plus, we'll look forward to this weekend's launch of Monocle 24's latest show. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. First of all, this weekend sees a new addition to Monocle 24's schedule. Monocle on Sunday airs at 9am on the day of the week you can probably guess at. Monocle on Sunday will be hosted from our Zurich Bureau by our Editor-in-Chief Tyler Brule. And joining me now from our Zurich Bureau to tell us what we can look forward to is Monocle 24's Ben Rylan. Um, ben, obviously keeping something in reserve for expectant listeners, but what is going to be on the show? Andrew, it's really exciting. It's our very first regular program that we're presenting from our bureau here in Zurich, which if you haven't been down here to all of our listeners, you should definitely come and visit us. Uh, Monocle on Sunday, the very first edition, we're expecting it to go out this Sunday, uh, live at 10am if you're listening here in Central Europe, 9am if you're over there in beautiful London. Uh, The very first program, well, of course, we are launching just before Davos kicks off. Uh, All of those world leaders will be gathering up there at the mountain as we are getting ready. So we'll be discussing all things Davos, uh, starting off, of course, with the idea of climate change and artificial intelligence, two key issues likely to be on the tips of everyone's tongues up there in the mountains. Uh, Is a global approach to climate change even possible? Now, that's going to be the very big question on everyone's minds. But also, if you were given the chance to address leaders at this year's gathering, what would you be pitching? Now, that is something that I think perhaps a lot of people haven't really thought about. One person who has thought about it, of course, is the former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, who you, Andrew, were speaking to just a couple of days ago. We'll be hearing a little bit from him on uh, how he thinks the world should be looking at the idea of tackling climate change. Uh, One thing that he told us was that the world's approach to tackling the huge challenge should actually surpass the ambition that we once had when we were putting a man on the moon. It won't all be about Davos, however. Believe it or not, there are still other things happening in the rest of the world. Uh, Right here in Switzerland, uh, something that a lot of people have been talking about is the city of Baden. That's because it's the winner of this year's Walker Prize. Now, if you don't know about that, uh, it's a prize that's awarded to cities for clever thinking when it comes to remaking some of their urban centres. Now, the city of Baden managed to redevelop its urban centre by ripping out all of the traffic congestion 
and replacing it with more public space. What an idea. It's managed to work really, really well, so the people up there are really happy with what's been happening in their city. But also, anyone who has picked up a copy of the latest issue and final issue, in fact, of the Winter Weekly, Monocle's special edition newspaper. Uh, This recent edition is all about Davos, and Tyler Brule's own column in that, uh, The Faster Lane, has been talking about whether we should be turning down the tech and whether we might be, in fact, in the midst of a technological backlash. Uh, Much has been written about uh, technology moving a little bit too fast and a lot of people feeling like they're being left behind by it all. Uh, Tyler's having a, a bit of a think about whether this online world that's been created has actually managed to managed to take place without any degree of common courtesy. Uh, loud phone calls in public, for example. I think we've all seen people taking too many photographs out there in the public space and uh, not really thinking about whether we all want to be inside those silly Instagram pictures when they're snapping them all over the world. But more seriously, as I heard from Joy Ladico earlier in the week, uh, this rapid pace of technological change may in fact have created a bit of a backlash uh, against technology, but also maybe a rise and a return to conservatism in politics as well. So we'll be asking our panel of guests about that. Our guests, in case you are wondering, uh, Jan de Hinton from Bloomberg is going to be joining us. The economist Cornelia Meyer will also be here as well, and we'll hear from Mark Ditley the editor-in-chief of Republic. So it is sure to be an action-packed show. Please do tune in. Ben Rylan from our Zurich Bureau, thank you for joining us. A reminder that Monocle on Sunday debuts this Sunday at 9am London time, 10am Zurich and elsewhere in Central Europe. You are listening to Monocle's House View. You're listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. Now, of all the indignities perpetrated upon the English language by the vulgarians and yahoos who populate too many advertising agencies, few are more egregious than what might be thought of as the verbing of nouns. One of the few people capable of banging on about this recurrent outrage at even greater length than this presenter is Monocle's senior editor, Rob Bound, and here he is doing exactly that. There's a new UK advertising campaign for the First Direct Bank, the tagline of which reads, There's no right way to money. Of course, there are a millennia of data to suggest, unless borrowing to buy a house or defend a nation in time of war, that there is very definitely a right way to money. But this column's real niggle about the ad is its promotion of a very wrong way to English. What are the scenarios in which we might employ First Direct's use of the noun money as a verb? Maybe as the bill arrives in a restaurant. How should we money this, guys? 50-50? Nauseating. When talking to an employee during their annual review. We think we're moneying you fairly for your performance this year. I wish I was dead. How about ringing First Direct itself for overdraft advice? Well, I'm moneying inadequately at the moment, but have a new contract starting next month. Imagine their faces in the call centre. Jerry Maguire would be so different and bad, on the other hand, if Tom Cruise's famous show-me-the-money line became please display your incoming and outgoing financial transactions. This dispiriting trend has been going for a while. Despite shopping being a verb, people now believe that they can shop sofas rather than go shopping for a sofa. And there is an especially spiky rung of Hell's Ladder reserved for those who want to gift things to each other instead of giving them. 
First Direct is a branchless phone and online challenger bank. In fact, originally a part of Large Midland Bank, later very big HSBC. And their branding and attitude was created by the late great ad man Wally Olins. Olins was a brilliant man and a formidable communicator who would, I think, have been jumping up and down on his signature outsized spectacles in frustration at such awful copywriting. If money really is a verb that can mean anything, then fine. First Direct's new campaign can be the first to money right off. For Monocle, I'm Robert Bound. Damn straight. You're listening to Monocle 24. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Time now for our weekly reflection on what the last seven days have taught us. We learned this week, though cannot claim to have been surprised, that the imminent getting done of Brexit appears in no danger of restoring the United Kingdom to sanity, normality, decorum or the other qualities these islands might once have thought of as their factory settings. An astonishing amount, which is to say any amount, of energy has been expended in a row over the propriety, logistics and cost of enabling Big Ben to bong Brexit in on January 31st. The famous bell is currently being restored, which means that the clapper would need to be temporarily reinstalled. A voluble and debatably sane cohort are convinced that this is of consuming importance. Arguably not the first time that Brexiters have demanded something pointless, difficult and expensive. Here's Alex von Tunzelman on Thursday's briefing. Now this is going to be an unusual thing for me to say because I I am a Remainer, but actually I think if somebody does want to raise half a million quid to do this, I think that's fine. If that's what people want to spend their money on, then I suppose they're entitled to do so. Um, I think it's a difficult thing from the point of view of any future relationship with the European Union to look very celebratory about the moment of leaving. And it's obviously a difficult thing in the country at large as well, which is still heavily divided. Perhaps when there should be some celebrations is when they make such a wonderful success of Brexit. Uh, Once there's something to celebrate, perhaps we can all join in. We learned that, beginning next Tuesday, the United States and a popcorn-scoffing world is to be treated to the third impeachment trial of a sitting president in American history, after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sent the pertinent articles to the Senate. It seems unlikely that the Republican-controlled Senate will furnish the two-thirds majority required to convict Donald Trump and remove him from office. So the chances of all this ending, with Trump roaming the White House ramparts clad in a dressing gown and heaving roof slates at US Marshals, may seem slight. But funnier things have happened, not a few of them in American politics these last three years or so. Here's Amy Pope on Thursday's briefing. Something that Speaker Pelosi has been dealing with since the beginning. If you asked her just as a purely political strategy, is this the right one? I think she would say no, because it is not a political winner. We know where the Republicans stand. We know how this story is going to end. And she's taking a political risk. We continued to learn, though one might have hoped that more of the world would have absorbed this by now, that the people of Iran are very far from being a monolithic block of fanatical devotion to their government and its repression at home and belligerence abroad. 
Protests continued across Iran at the accidental shooting down by Iran's military last week of a Ukrainian jetliner taking off from Tehran with the loss of 176 lives, most of them Iranian lives or Canadian Iranian lives. It is no small thing, protest of this scale in Iran. Nobody takes to these streets unaware of the risk they are running. Here's Holly Dagres on Tuesday's Globalist. Every time there's been protests, there's been a violent crackdown, and it's no different. The only difference since November and now is that they had killed between 300 to 1,500 people in November and had shut down the internet for a week. And yes, we've seen videos of wounded, but we haven't had any death toll, and the internet hasn't shut down. But it's an unfortunate reality that when they feel threatened, they feel the need to crack down and kill. Continuing with a scale of surrealness that we may not see matched the rest of this year or decade or remaining time until the earth is swallowed by a dying sun, President Trump decided to encourage Iran's protesters by tweeting his support in Farsi, at which we should pause to consider the reaction of the Republican Party and its hotter-headed media outriders had Barack Obama ever addressed the world in Arabic or Swahili. As Trump may or may not be aware, Iran's rulers took the precaution of blocking Twitter some while back. However, some Iranians are more equal than others, and Trump's words were noted by the head of Iran's Center for Public Diplomacy, who tweet harumphed, hands and tongues smeared with threatening, sanctioning and terrorizing the Iranian nation are not entitled to dishonor the ancient Persian language. To which the obvious retort is that compared to the degradations Trump routinely inflicts upon the ancient English language, Farsi is getting off pretty lightly. We learned at least of one small liberalising measure in one part of Iran's approximate vicinity. Turkey restored access to Wikipedia after banning it for three years. While Turks are doubtless enjoying being once again as misinformed as the rest of us, it's hard to see this lasting longer than it takes for someone to amuse themselves editing President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's page. And we learned that any such vindictive vandal is not struggling for material. For we learned this week something of the cost of falling out with Turkey's president. One of Turkey's greatest ever footballers, Hakan Suka, the former Galatasaray striker who also made 112 appearances for Turkey's national team and remains the all-time leading goalscorer in Turkey's Super League, is driving an Uber in San Francisco. Sukur blamed his reduced circumstances on a series of disagreements with President Erdogan, a man who appears to exist to make President Trump look reasonable, forgiving and self-effacing. But more heartwarmingly, we learned of what might be the longest away trip in world football, and that it need be no obstacle to success. Teams from the French overseas territory of Réunion, a lump of volcanic rock in the southern Indian Ocean, somewhere betwixt Mauritius and Madagascar, are eligible to compete in the French Cup. One such outfit, JS Saint-Pierrat, has been on quite the cup run this season, despite the distances and jet lag involved, and will this weekend play in the final 32 of the tournament, which means they have once more saddled up for the 11-hour flight to the mainland, this time to Epinal. And with due apologies to our many listeners in Epinal, allez les stocks. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned.
You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Glorious tidings for aficionados now of obscure and indeed obtuse diplomatic brouhaha's or bruise-ha-ha, whichever of those is the correct plural form. The United States ambassador to South Korea, Harry Harris, is at the centre of a storm of controversy, by which we mean, obviously, is being yelled at on social media by underemployed umbrage takers. But we're going with this anyway. At issue is the ambassador's moustache, which some Koreans have chosen to interpret as an echo, possibly even deliberate, of the facial hair flaunted by Japanese governors general during the unhappy period in which Korea was a colonial possession of Tokyo. Well, earlier I spoke about this pressing issue to Holly Dagres of the Atlantic Council and Enrico Franceschini of La Repubblica. Absolutely. I mean, this is a guy that had to be clean shaven every day of his life. I mean, let, give the guy a break. He doesn't want to grow a beard. Maybe he can't grow one. So the most he can grow is a mustache. <laughs> I mean, Enrico, it is, it is tempting to regard this whole thing as completely ridiculous. And indeed, I think that's what we're doing. But is it, should we also maybe consider that to some Koreans, this appears somewhat akin to an ambassador to Germany deciding he was going to grow a sort of toothbrushy arrangement under his nose. Well, it does. I mean, it's easy to smile or even to laugh at this, but on the other hand... Indeed, I intend to carry on doing that. (laughs) Cultural cultural sensibilities, uh, of course, uh, must be taken into account. Uh, We live in a a politically correct era, uh, which makes sense, uh, and uh, it's a good thing, I believe, uh, overall. But there are circumstances in which it's very difficult to respect uh, certain sensibility or certain uh, the, the character of the people where you uh, go to live or you spend time. Uh, there are many examples of this. You were mentioning Germany. I want to tell you a funny story Please. about Germany, which is n- nothing to do with political leaders, but with everyday life. A few years ago, I spent a weekend in Berlin with my wife and my son when he was uh, five years old, and we went to a spa. And uh, so he went with his mom to change and went to, to the female uh, uh, part of the spa. I went to the male one, I put my bathing suit, got a towel, got out, and I saw a naked woman. And I thought, oh my God, I went by mistakes in the in the female part. Instead, as you know, in Germany, in spas, everybody's naked. Um, they at the cafe, in the pool, everywhere. And my family, we kept our betting suit on, <laughs> which was perhaps insulting to the cultural sensibility of Germans. Looked like we were looking at them I, in I, a funny I, way. I hope you then went out and made up for it by crossing the street against the lights. <laughs> um, Holly, an, an ambassador can't win here, though, can they? Because an ambassador of all people in this sort of circumstance cannot say, come on, everybody, get a life. It doesn't really that matter that much. How does he handle this? Does it? Does it? Does he? Would it? Would it be considered a kind of abnegation of his role, a, a sort of humiliation of the United States, were he to shave the moustache off? I, I mean, I, I was thinking about that. I think what's surprising is that um, he wasn't schooled in those cultural sensitivities before he went there, and I kind of fault the State Department on <laughs> explaining all this to him because, I mean, you, you think that the, the facial hair desk at the State Department has fallen down on the job? Well, here. I mean, no. I mean, I think also just explaining about the 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 sensitivities. It's not the fact that it's the mustache. It's also because he's of Japanese heritage, that's and it. I think that's where the bigger issue lies. Is they didn't think for two seconds that oh maybe they're going to think about this and bring this up, and it's going to bring a diplomatic, arguably crisis right now or silly crisis, if you would say, because they didn't think this through. But going back to your question, I I mean, I don't 
see them actually making and deciding to shave this mustache off and it'll the problems will go away <laughs> i think the bigger issue here is that his mother is japanese and they're they're focusing on that and using the mustache as an excuse and I don't think that's fair um, to the ambassador because again, no, not. It, it's it's silly. And I, I'm going to throw in my own little story. Um, <laughs> we had uh, apparently there was a Pakistani diplomat that was going to be the ambassador to Saudi Arabia, but they decided that they rejected his um, ambassadorship because his name in Arabic was his name Akbar Zub translated into Arabic. I was excuse me for saying this, but big penis. <laughs> So, I mean, it's not his fault that he was born with this name, but it was a big cultural sensitivity in the Arab world. And apparently he was rejected from Bahrain and UAE ambassadorships as well. Seen in a certain light, a name like that could be kind of an advantage. (laughs) Indeed, but I feel like it'd be quite awkward situation if you were saying penis, ambassador penis every time <laughs> you find chuckles or cross eyes everywhere. <laughs> but en- Enrico, are we also perhaps looking here at what I think is not merely a, a subject specific to South Korea and the United States, but a global phenomenon? Is, is this one of those things which demonstrates that anger has expanded to fill the space available in which to express it, by which I mean pre-social media, is anybody on earth really going to kick off one way or the other about an ambassador's moustache? It's true. On on one end, you're completely right. This is an exaggeration. It it has to do with the social media. It has to do with with the also with nationalism, uh, with with the way you, you you put your country becomes your tradition, your roots are so important. Uh, uh, on the other end, perhaps as as Oli was saying, uh, maybe the State Department didn't think about it. it. It comes to back to white people not knowing well other parts of the world. Holly, really, where do you see the resolution of this? Can 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 bloodshed be averted? Yes, I mean, I think that they need to accept the facts. Yeah, that, and I think that Koreans also need to look at their own um, sense of how they're handling the situation. I mean, uh, not to belittle what happened in Korean and Japanese history, but I think we also have to accept that this is American after, at the end of the day. And just because somebody has a, a certain heritage doesn't mean you have to hold them for the crimes of another country. Yes. That was Holly Dagres and Enrico Franceschini. This is Monocle's House View. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, and indeed finally this week, at this admittedly early stage of the new decade, there are indications that the 2020s may prove a golden age for inexplicably revived old folk songs with a vaguely unsavoury nationalist edge. Last week in the UK, in what would have seemed like quite the turn-up for most of the 1970s and 1980s, the iTunes chart was topped by the Wolf Tones Come Out Ye Black and Tans, an admittedly rousing pro-IRA anthem launched up the charts as a protest against a proposed commemoration of early 20th century Irish police forces. This week, it appears to be the turn of Wales in the form of Dafeth Iwan's Ima Ohid, currently iTunes UK number one. It goes like this.
Joining me to explain how this has happened is Monocle's Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis, whose qualifications to comment may be gleaned from his accent. I cannot help but suspect that one of today's producers, Rhys James, may be in on this as well. Uh, Thomas, first of all, uh, to a non-Welsh listenership, uh, who is Daffith Ewan? Well, David Iwan is often described to, by non-Welsh speakers as, I guess, the Welsh language's answer to figures like Bob Dylan or Joan Byers. You know, he was really the sort of voice and the singer of of the Welsh language's protest movements, uh, you know, from when he was in his 20s and the 60s. And Wales was convulsed by its own protest movements like there were around the world as well. But he really is an iconic f- figure to Welsh speakers. And Amal Heed, and I can't deny I had, you know, hairs at the back of my neck standing on end hearing that. Uh, but it's as close to an anthem as you get, really, for lots of Welsh speakers. It's one of those rare songs for Welsh speaking people. You know, there are songs like this in many countries around the world where no matter who you ask or wherever they are, they will know the tune. They will know the chorus for certain. And it really is something, whether you agree with the politics of the song, uh, that really is something quite universal among among Welsh speakers. And it's been a, welcomed as a real surprise that it's now hit the UK iTunes charts is quite a quite a surprising thing I think for lots of us well well having established then that it's basically the Welsh equivalent to minute works down under um, and the, and the role that fulfills for my people um, we'll talk about the the content of the song shortly but the fact of it being number one which is why we're talking about it how and why has this happened? Well, it's happened because of a sort of nascent, I suppose, kind of campaign to look at the idea of Welsh independence. Now, Welsh independence uh, as as a notion is quite different to, say, sort of ideas of independence in, say, Scotland, for example, given that in Wales it's for for decades been tied to the language itself. And that's why figures like David Iwan, uh, who wrote Amaohid, um, you know, have become such totems, really, and such towering figures for many Welsh speakers, because the idea of an independent Wales meant a living and thriving language, a language that campaigners will tell you that for for centuries, you know, the various invaders of Wales and the English, first among them, try to stamp out and kill off. And Amal Heed means we are still here. And what David Iwan is saying there is that the language is still here, despite all the attempts uh, to kill it off entirely. So this new campaign uh, trying to raise awareness for, for Welsh independence used it as the, the theme Music, if you like, uh, for for a new um, television campaign that they've launched, and it really has gained traction and has chimed a chord with people far beyond, I suppose, the remit in musical terms, at least the remit, the target audience that it was trying to get at. I suppose. I mean, as I noted in the introduction, it does, through bizarre happenstance, follow to the top of the UK charts. The Wolf Tones come out, you black and tans, which is fairly unmistakable in its sentiment, not least because it is sung in English, but. This song obviously is sung in Welsh and therefore the subtleties of it may be lost on non-Welsh speakers. But is is there the same kind of uh, belligerence underpinning it or is this a different kind of vision of independence and nationalism? Well, it's basically a roll call of the injustices that have been carried out against the Welsh people by the English over the centuries. And the big sort of scene, if you like, in the song is the 1969 investiture of Prince Charles as as Prince of Wales, which was a hugely controversial moment for Welsh speakers across Wales, given that the optics of uh, the the son of an English monarch now gaining the the crown of the historic Welsh principality 
municipalities uh, was something to be fought against. And there's a long and, and rich history to the, the militancy and the, um, the sort of protest that surrounded that event in 1969. This song was, was written in 1981 and, and released in 1983. And, you know, since then, given that Wales has had varying sort of fortunes, if you like, at the hands, as campaigners would say it, of, of London-based governments, it has kind of gained various different guises over those years, I think. Uh, back in 2009, signed the first Welsh language record label, celebrated its 40th anniversary. And the crowning of those celebrations is a big concert. And the closing number of that concert was David Iwan, with all joined by a huge roster of the current great and good of Welsh folk and pop singing, all sang this song together. And he had tears in his eyes. And it was a real moment, I think, for Welsh speakers, at least, uh, that really saw that this song is kind of a universal thing, really, no matter what political era uh, you find yourself in. That was Thomas Lewis in our Toronto Bureau, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and Rhys James. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View returns at the same time on Monday, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening and have a great weekend.